I want to start off this morning with a game. Games are always good. I want to test your sophistication musicology here. So I'm going to read the words of a song. Uh, not the, all of them, just, just the first few. And I want you to guess who it was who sang it and what was the context in which they sang it. Okay, but, but don't just scream it out because what we'll do is we'll give you some options to choose on the screen and then you can make your guess that way. Here we go. Okay, if you know it, don't, ooh, ooh, don't just, just keep it down. Okay, there was a time when men were kind, when their voices were soft and their words inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song and the song was exciting. There was a time then it all went wrong. Okay, here are your options. Who sang this somewhere? Option one, Taylor Swift sang it on her latest album, Today. Belle sang it, Beauty and the Beast. C. Fantine sang it, in Les Mis. Lindsay Lohan sang it in The Parent Trap. Or Keith Partridge sang it with the Partridge family. Okay, what do you guess? Tell the, talk to the person next to you. Tell them what you guess. Which one? What do you think? Okay, any guesses for Keith Partridge? What do you think? Oh, we got a couple. All right, all right. Partridge family, I love it. No, Keith didn't sing this one. Uh, Lindsay Lohan with a parent trap. She's beautiful voice as a little kid. No, she didn't sing it either. Uh, let's get together, but not, not this. Taylor Swift did not sing it, nor did Belle. It was from Fantine from Les Mis. Anybody? How people knew that? Can you do that? All right, uh, give, let me give you the, the story real quick. At the beginning of the, uh, Victor Hugo's play turned into a movie, uh, Les Mis, you've got Fantine. Uh, she's got a relationship going on with this guy, and they, they have this uh, great romantic relationship, and they're dreaming dreams. They're, you know how you are when you're young, and they're thinking of how it's going to be, and, and it's, life is really good. Well, he leaves her with a baby, and this is 1832 France, right? France, 19, or 1832. And so she doesn't have any way to support her child, Cosette. And so she puts Cosette in kind of like the kinder care of the time, but it was not kinder care at all. It was mean, cruel, innkeeper type people. But she had to go to work, so she got into the factories working, you know, how the, that industrial revolution, many, many hours, lots of days, to just barely get by enough money for herself and her daughter. Well, they find out in the factory that she had a baby out of wedlock. And so she's out in the streets. And now she's got no way to support her, her child. And so she sells her hair. Then she sells her teeth. Then she sells her, her body. And she's uh, sick, she's dying in the streets, as you can imagine, abused in every way you could possibly be abused. And she's thinking back over, over her life. And she, next words of the song, she says, I, I dreamed a dream in time gone by, when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die, I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Then I was young and unafraid and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no, unsung, no song unsung, no wine untasted. But the tigers came at night with their voices soft as thunder as they tear your hope apart, as they turn your dream to shame. And then she ends her song. She would say, I had a dream of my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. 
so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Can you relate just a little bit to Fantine? Maybe I hope your stuff has not been as bad. You know, if you Google this and you check it out on YouTube and you see Anne Hathaway in the movie singing this, it's really stirring. I mean, your your heart is breaking. Um, Maybe your circumstance is not as bad as hers, but yet there's a hopelessness sometimes, right? It's just, I think that this is the way the disciples were when Jesus was killed. I mean, they, they had tied all their hope to Jesus being the Messiah. I mean, it was, they put all their eggs in the Messiah basket. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, their lives were going to be shot. They were nothing because they left their families, they left their businesses, they were ostracized from the community, they had gotten some legal folk very upset at them, and if Jesus really wasn't the Messiah, their lives would be done. I kind of think that that's the way um, real discipleship is. A lot of folk kind of tag Jesus on the end, and if, just in case, you know, and so life is what it is, and if Jesus is real, that's great, and if not, oh well, it really doesn't affect much. If true discipleship, if I'm not mistaken, according to scripture, is that if Jesus isn't real, your life has been a waste. That's the way, and that's certainly the way it was for these folk. And so they watched Jesus, when they watched him die, they, it was, the kingdom, it was the Messiah, it was they, all their, their dreams are done. And when they, they put him in the, the tomb and they rolled the stone, that'd be kind of like going to a gravesite and you put the person in the coffin and you lower them and you put the dirt. It's just done. It's just done. It's done. The incredible hopelessness that they faced. They, they, According to the text, of course, Jesus is going to rise from the dead on, on Sunday. We, we know that. So Sunday is coming, right? But I don't know if they knew that. I'm relatively sure they didn't. They, can you imagine Saturday for these guys? Just think Saturday for a minute. Saturday, you know, they're crying out and screaming and pleading with God for answers. And what they're getting was silence, right? And, and they're, they're, they're confused and they don't understand and this is not the way life was supposed to go and everything is falling apart and it's just going to get worse from here. And so they're screaming, please, God, nothing, silence. Have you, have you ever lived on Saturday? Maybe you're living on Saturday now. Sometimes we can, and maybe there's a Sunday, maybe not. And we're crying out and we're confused and we don't understand. God, why? Silence. Saturday, it's a tough, tough place to be. Well, according to the text, Jesus rises. And today, we, we look at that, and we're kind of like, oh, okay, that was, that was nice, and that was good. Um, and I'll come celebrate that at Easter time, you know, yay, it was a fun thing. But in all honesty, what does it matter, right? I mean, Jesus rose, and he went back to heaven, and all that's great. But injustice is still reigning, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, just check out the, the, the headlines, right? I mean, uh, poor people are still exploited. Uh, uh, terrible things happen to, to children in this world. I mean, all kinds of, of, of accidents and, and sicknesses. And, and I'm glad he rose from the dead. I just, just I don't see what it matters in, in my life. It's still kind of irrelevant. So, now that's, a lot of people think that. Even Christian folk think that sometimes. Now, you can't say it, right? Because that's kind of blasphemous. That's like, well, that doesn't go over well in church. But, but folks think it all the same. And, and here's the deal. If that's a little bit in the heart, it cannot help 
but direct your life. It just, it just can't. And so, so where's the question? What relevancy does the resurrection have for our lives today? I mean, really, it was nice, it's good. We're sure something probably is in there, but you know, we'll find out about it when we get to heaven one day. Oh, well, it's really not going to make any difference. What's the difference? Well, this morning we want to look at uh, incredible texts. Actually, John, we're going to look at John 20 and 21. 21 is my favorite text in the whole Bible. You'll find out why when we get there. But Jesus is risen from the dead, and then he proactively goes after three of his disciples, individually, who are each dealing with his crucifixion in a different kind of way. Now they had all known, they all, they all knew at this point, John 20, 21, they all knew of, they'd heard of the resurrection, they'd heard that he rose, but that didn't alter the hopelessness. This is, this, this is a key thing. The resurrection of Jesus changes nothing. An encounter with the resurrected Jesus changes everything. Why that's important is we come to church and you hear the story, Jesus rose from the dead. You need to know, just hearing about the resurrection of Jesus changes nothing. Encounter with the resurrected Jesus changes everything. If you got your Bibles, turn with me. John 20, John 21 Great, great text. We're going to dig right in right at the beginning. John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, it's probably John, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked into the, in at all the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips and the linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed... They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Something's going on. Something, some, something has happened here, right? And they know something's happened. They're not sure exactly what it is. They're, 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 they still don't believe. John did. Peter wasn't there yet. And, uh, verse 10, we find the first disciple that Jesus comes to. And this is Mary Magdalene. Then the disciple, disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? The word for crying, you know, it's not boo-hoo. The word for crying is, is, uh, is wailing here. I mean, it's, she is really falling apart here. I mean, I mean, just uh, uh, major sobs and, and heaving and, and just, just come, coming unglued. And so they ask her, women, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Uh, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. A couple reasons, maybe. Maybe because she was still falling apart. She's crying, veil of, of tears. Maybe because it was still twilight. Uh, it was dark yet. Uh, perhaps because last time she saw Jesus, his body had been shredded, and she just didn't expect to see him standing there. 
maybe there was something shifted in his appearance where you just couldn't recognize him in his new glorified body. Maybe so, but either way, she didn't recognize him. And woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. Now she's heard that voice before. Uh, say her name before, right? So she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, my God and your, fa- and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them oh, that he had said these things to her. Mary Magdalene. Okay, who is Mary Magdalene for just a second? Um, lots of rumors around Mary. Um, when I was a little boy, we're talking little here, so don't get me too old here. Uh, the rock opera, opera Jesus Christ Superstar was big. Right? And in Jesus Christ Superstar, star, Mary Magdalene is, is struggling here. She's kind of in a, in a straight betwixt two. She, one level, she's uh, interested in Jesus as a religious man. Uh, she's interested in following him in a spiritual sense. And then on another level, she's interested in Jesus romantically. Uh, she wants to follow him in a romantic sense. And so she sings this song, I Do Not Know How to Love Him. Uh, according to Jesus Christ Superstar, Mary uh, had feelings for Jesus romantically. The Da Vinci Code says that Mary was actually Jesus' wife. And they had a child together. And I hope you, you realize and understand that there is zero, zero historical evidence for that. I mean, that's just pure, 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 made-up conjecture stuff. Nothing out like that at all, uh, historically, in anything. Um, but what we do know about Mary, a couple things. One we know is kind of profound. She was a woman. Right? Okay, that's real profound. I got it. But understanding... The culture is huge. I mean, this is, this is really amazing to me that uh, women were, were at this time in this place not widely respected as far as their opinions. Matter of fact, there was a rabbinical prayer that says, um, Blessing are you, O God, our God, ruler of the universe, for you have not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And that's what the rabbis would pray this every morning. They get up, thank you for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Oh my goodness, I can't imagine what a terrible life that would be. Uh, in this culture, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court, Jewish court or Roman court. So if a guy commits a horrific crime, 100 women are sit, sit, standing there watching it, uh, no guy's watching it, he's, he can get off scot-free because the witness is not, not valid. And, and it's amazing, isn't it? That uh, I think a proof of the resurrection really happening is the very first witnesses to the tomb were women. If you were trying to make up a story that you wanted people to believe, you would not put that in there. You would have some, you know, some mayor coming to the tomb. Not you would not have women. Yet all four of the gospels have women at the tomb first. The only reason they would do that is if it really happened. So, 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 Mary. We know also about Mary, not only was she a woman, by the way, let me take a, a, a sidetrack for a second, all uh, kiddos for a second if you're in here, especially girls, I know you're kind of like drawn or doing Facebook, but just kind of put that aside for just a second, adults, hopefully you're not doing the Facebook too with them, um, but kids, please listen to me, if you girls, please, don't, I didn't want you to get confused by what I said here, 
the Bible does not say, right, that girls are less than guys. I want you to know that. Bible does not say that they're less, that they're, they're less intelligent or less. Not at all. In God's eyes at the cross, boys and girls are equal. Uh, some bad people thought that back then, and Jesus was trying to, to fix that. But just, just so you know that. So Mary w- was a woman. Also, Mary, we know, was a woman with a past. Luke 8, 2 says that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Now, what did that look like? I don't, I don't know what that looked like. Uh, somehow, Satan had a hold of her body, her mind, her soul, and that was manifested. People knew that she was demonized. We, we do know in Scripture, we see some pictures of people who were demonized. It goes into detail. Remember Mark 5, the guy going through the tombs, and he's cutting himself, and he's screaming out, and people can't subdue him, and he's just a wild guy, and he, everybody's afraid of him, and he's like living in a graveyard. He's just uh, coming unglued. We find people who are demonized in Scripture who are throwing themselves in the fire. A lot of self-loathing, self self-mutilation, they are foaming, going into trances. How this looked for Mary, I don't know. Was she any of that? I I don't know. Was it manifested in an immoral lifestyle? There's a lot of tradition. We don't, again, we don't know anything for sure, but tradition, that's where Mary was at. Was it manifested in hate, in bitterness, in cruelty, just meanness? I mean, what, what did that look like? I don't know. But one day, uh, Jesus comes to Mary where everyone else would have given up on her. I mean, if you were an adult and this is where you were at, demonized, you got to know that people were not having pity on you. They weren't thinking, oh, this is someone who needs help. They were thinking, this is someone who's been cursed by God. This is someone who has turned their back on God and hence he's turned their back, his back on them and they deserve where they're at. This was, she was a, a poster child for, for being far away from God and so nobody would have had any compassion on her. Jesus comes to her and he sees her in a way that no one else does. He sees her in a way that she probably doesn't see herself and he recognized that she's a, a special creation. She was a, a daughter of the king. And so he he gives her acceptance and forgiveness and hope and healing. Mary's life is transformed. She's transformed. This is amazing to me. Mary is very first person to recognize the resurrection. You'd think that he would bring a, a pastor, right, or a missionary, or somebody important. No, he brings Mary there. Mary, very first, Mary is the very first person to go tell anybody that Jesus rose from the dead. How many sermons do you think have been preached in the history of the world where people have said, Jesus has risen from the dead? Very first person to tell anybody that was Mary. Mary, very first person to have Jesus talk to after he rose from the dead, right here. Mary, very first person, matter of fact, the only person we know of in scripture who hugged Jesus. And she gives Jesus this huge mongo hug. She's clinging on to him. She's hanging on to Jesus. And so when he says, let go, um, most probably what this means, and there's some controversy around what he actually this is he's saying here, but most probably what he's saying, you know, can you, you can imagine, she's been freaking out this she's hanging on to him with dear life and he's saying you know basically mary i got stuff to do and you got stuff to do let's all right thank you for hugging me let's let's move on here so that's kind of the the thought here but the very first person was mary and you wonder i wonder why he just chose mary mary probably plagued a little bit with her past 
the shame of who she was, what she's done. Can you relate a little bit to Mary? Maybe things in your past, maybe no one knows about, but it haunts you once in a while. Kind of makes you feel relegated to a second-class citizen spiritually. You're never really going to be like someone whose life was really pure and didn't do bad because you know your record. I mean, read this to you. This is from Luke 7. Just listen, though. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her hair, or with her tears, and wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins, which have been, forgi- have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. We, we don't know, but tradition says this woman is Mary Magdalene. I had a girl that worked with me in the youth group years and years ago. And she had like a Mary past. She had a past. And it haunted her. But I remember she and I were hanging out one time. And she said to me, something got me ticked off, but she said, she said, she said, you know, I think I can love Jesus more than you. I was, what are you talking about? I was a squeaky, clean kid. Man, I didn't do anything bad. I was a good, I was a good kid. But I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, well, you know, I, I did all these things. I've been forgiven so much. I'm just feeling awful. I, I know how much I've been forgiven, so I think I can love him more. And I was so angry at what she said. That's not true. That's not true. In retrospect, I think maybe she was onto something. Based on this text, based for those who, who can relate to Mary, this is the wild thing about God. You've got stuff going on that, that, that you just wish you could, but you can't erase it. It is what it is. Uh, you need to know that somehow God can turn those things into opportunities for intimacy with him that you couldn't have otherwise. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But because of he who has been forgiven much, loves much, things that, that, that haunt and hurt, he can turn those into uh, trophies of his grace, places where, where you would have a level of a, or have an ability to love him on a deeper level with more intimacy than otherwise. It's the way, it's the only way God, only God could do that. 
And so Jesus comes to Mary here, who's maybe plagued with the shame of her past, and he says, Mary, you just got to understand this. This is why I died and rose again. You are not a second-class citizen. You are first coming to the temple. You are coming to the tomb. I just want you to know that. You're first with the resurrection thing. You're the first one to tell anybody. You are not a second-class citizen. There are no second-class citizens in my kingdom, Mary. And so maybe, if you can relate to Mary this morning, the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus would say to you what he said to Mary, there are no second classes. You know what, I had to, there's a reason why I had to die. And I rose. It's from your, because of your past. But because of that, your past is done. It's just, it's just done. Well, the second disciple he shows up on his porch is uh, Thomas. Good old doubting Thomas, right? You've heard of good old doubting Thomas. Well, just before he talks to Thomas, he shows himself to all of his disciples, but it's important to know they're all in a room hanging out. But Thomas is not there, tells us. So then Thomas joins him and says, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the, where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now, Thomas was a pharmacist, accountant type. Thomas was very pragmatic. No, doesn't live his life by subjective feelings. It's got to be precise. It's got to be real. He's a man of science. And he saw Jesus crucified. And he watched his body shred, be shred. And he, he watched him bleed. And he watched the spear go into his side. And you got to know, all the adults in Jerusalem, at least, very familiar with crucifixion. The Romans were going to make sure that they knew what it was about. He had seen a lot of folk die this way. So when he saw Jesus, he knew Jesus was dead. And then when they buried him, chapter 19 says that they buried him according to... Uh, uh, Jewish burial standards, 19 tells us they use 75 pounds of spices. And what they would do is they would wrap your body in cloth and they would smear this gummy resin thing with spice on and they would wrap more cloths. It's kind of like mummifying you almost. And he watched, this is what happened to Jesus. He's in the tomb and he's thinking, I'm glad you guys are hopeful that Jesus is alive. And I know you had this delusion thinking that you saw him and all, but you need to understand, I need some evidence. I need some proof. Can you relate to, to Thomas at all today? You say, I'm glad people talk about Jesus' resurrection and all that's wonderful, but I, I'm into science, you know what I mean? And dead people don't rise from the grave. I just need some evidence, some proof. Don't ask me to believe something that can't be substantiated with proof. You need to know Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is not afraid of, of honest skepticism. He is not afraid of honest questions at all. He comes to Thomas. He welcomes that. So a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Through the, Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. It's a good thing to say peace. Probably scared the bejeebers out of these guys, right? Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. They were all there, but he came to see Thomas. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. It looks like Thomas didn't have to touch him. Just seeing him wasn't enough. I, I love this because, because Thomas had 
honest doubts. And maybe he felt like, I'm glad all these other apostle guys can have uh, this belief system, but I can't. I want to, but I can't. I'm a second-class citizen spiritually. And Jesus is coming to Thomas saying, no, 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 no. Honest doubts are okay. But, but, but don't stop there. You've got to go with what Jesus says. Check me out. Now, Thomas, don't miss this. It's real important. If you struggle with doubts, he availed himself of truth. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he hung out with these guys that believed it. He struggled in his heart with whether or not this is correct or true. He, he, he wrestled with this. He, he, he was there. And Jesus would say, you're struggling with doubts. You're in the Thomas category. Okay, check me out. Check me out. Because historically, this thing was not done in a corner. Check it out. Uh, I think a lot of folk who are struggling with the doubts, uh, I think sometimes a little bit of a smokescreen. You know, it's, uh, it's like Lola. You know, Lola prayed, oh God, please, Lord, would you help me win the lotto? Please, I just want to win the lotto. It's lots of money and, you know, it's all the cool things I could do. And I got bills and stuff, God. And Lord, would you please just help me win the lotto? That'd be so nice. End of the week, the numbers come up on the screen. Lola doesn't win the lotto. So next week, she's praying. She goes, please, God, you didn't help me last week. Would you help me this week? I just want to win the the lotto. I mean, I'm not going to use the money just for me. I'll help poor people and stuff, and and that's fine, too. I mean, really, so would you please just help me win the lotto? Please, God. End of the week. Numbers come across the TV. Lola doesn't win the lotto. Third week, Lola's saying, God, for crying out loud, you know, first week, you don't help me out. And the second week, you don't, you ever help anybody out? Will you just help me win the lotto this week? And then she hears a big voice from heaven. Lola, this is God. Meet me halfway here. Buy a ticket. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the color hair I bet that Lola probably had. Just scratch that part from the recording place. <laughs> I think a lot of folk are like that, though. Uh, they, they say, you know what? I, I, I don't, who would in their right mind would believe this? It can't obviously be true. It's wrong. And if God shows me something, great. And they sit back and they wait, maybe to be zapped by God. And God is saying, meet me halfway here. Will you do some research? Will you pull? Listen to my son. Check it out. I mean, he doesn't run from people who have questions. Check it out. Well, how do you check it out? Well, there's a lot of resources that we have today. More than a carpenter. Josh McDowell. This is a great little little book. Josh McDowell was on, uh, I think it's the University of Southern California. He'd had a rough life uh, going through some tough stuff. He was kind of looking for answers. But he noticed some people on campus, some students, faculty, who were different. So he started trying to hang out with them, Right? He says, a couple of weeks later, I sat around a table in the student union talking to some of the members of this group. The conversation turned to the topic of God. I was pretty skeptical and insecure about this subject, so I put on a big front. I leaned back in my chair, acting as if I couldn't, couldn't care less. Christianity, ha, I blustered. That's for unthinking weaklings, not intellectuals. Of course, under all this bluster, I really wanted what these people had but my pride didn't want them to know the aching urgency of my need. The subject bothered me, but I couldn't let it go, so I turned to one of the students, a good-looking woman. I used to think all Christians were ugly. And I said, tell me, why are you so different from all the other students? What changed your life? 
Without hesitation or embarrassment, she looked me straight in the eye, deadly serious, and uttered two words I never expected to hear in an intelligent discussion on a university campus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, I snapped. Oh, for God's sake, don't give me that kind of garbage. I'm fed up with religion. I'm fed up with the church. I'm fed up with the Bible. Immediately, she shot back. I didn't say religion. I said Jesus Christ. I wasn't buying it. Not for a minute. Taken aback by the young woman's courage and conviction, I apologized for my attitude. But I'm sick and tired of religion and religious people, I explained. I don't want anything to do with them. Then my new friends issued a challenge. I couldn't believe. They, they, they challenged me to make a rigorous intellectual examination of the claims of Jesus Christ, that he's God's son, that he inhabited a human body and lived among real men and women, that he died on the cross for the sins of humanity, that he was buried and was resurrected three days later, that he's still alive and can change a person's life today. I thought this challenge was a joke. Everyone with any sense knew that Christianity was based on a myth. I thought that only a walking idiot could believe the myth that Christ came back from the dead. But I accepted my friend's challenge. Mostly out of spite to prove them wrong. I was convinced that the Christian story would not stand up to evidence. I was a pre-law student and I knew something about evidence. I would investigate the claims of Christianity thoroughly and come back and knock the props out from under their sham religion. I took the challenge seriously. I spent months in research. I even dropped out of school for a time to study in the historically rich libraries of Europe. And I found evidence. Evidence in abundance. It says, I had to admit that Jesus Christ was more than a carpenter. He was all he claimed to be. My research turned me around intellectually. This more than a carpenter, is his uh, research kind of uh, condensed. If you're in Thomas's boat, you need to read this. But there are more, you know, uh, Lee Strobel wrote his book, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was a, an atheist. He was a Stanford graduate. He was an editor for the Chicago Tribune. His wife got into Jesus. It freaked him out. He was trying to disprove this for his wife's sake. And as he did this research and study, he came to the same conclusion Josh McDowell did. And he wrote a case for faith. If you're doubting, it's honest doubt, read. Another book I can encourage you is I I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Geisler. Great book. Uh, Simon Greenleaf was a professor of law at Harvard. And his students, he was bashing Christianity, and his students challenged him to check out the resurrection. He researched it, and guess what happened? Same thing that Lee Strobel happened. Same thing Josh McDowell turned his life around. Because when Jesus said, check me out, he wasn't coming up with an empty challenge. Uh, Not at at all. Um, Now, follow me for a minute. Because skeptics can sometimes say, well, there's a psychological need to believe. And so people who believe are really simply doing this because there's a psychological need to believe. And let's say in some cases that's, that's true. Now follow me for a second. The person who believes because there's a psychological need to believe, do you think that they have 
connected the dots between their belief and this need they have. You think they're, they're saying, yes, I believe, but really the only reason I do is because there's a psychological need I have to believe. And so that's why I believe and talk myself into believing that this stuff is actually true. When it's probably not, but I have a psychological need to believe. And that's, do they connect that? No, they don't connect that, right? That these folk who believe probably really think that this is true. Well, 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 in some instances, there is a psychological need to believe. You know what, though? There's also a psychological need not to believe. And, and can you, do you think that these people who don't believe, do you think they've connected the dots and they're saying, well, I don't believe, but the reason why I don't believe really has nothing to do with truth. It's simply because I have a psychological reason not to believe. Maybe something bad has happened to me in my life. Maybe I can't square what I see in the headlines with a a loving God. Maybe I've been disappointed in some way. And so I've got a psychological. This is why you think they connect the dots? No. They actually, they don't believe, but they think that the reasons are valid. And all I would say is if you are in Thomas's boat, maybe, just maybe, you're there. Where you you, you think that what your, your unbelief is validated. But maybe not. With the church, you don't have to check your brains at the door. You don't have to trade in common sense for rose-colored glasses. You don't have to deny reality and, and hope in something that you know at the bottom of your heart isn't true. That's not faith. That's stupidity. And so Jesus is saying, check me out. I dare you. And so if you're in Thomas's boat, just know, no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Doubts do not. But, but you have a responsibility. Check it out if, if, you're, if you're sincere. Third person that Jesus talks to, third disciple he comes to, John 21, is Peter. Now you need to know John 21, Peter was, Peter, remember, he had left his boats to go after Jesus. John 21, he's leaving Jesus to go after his boats. He's going back to his old way of life. He's leaving Christ. He's done with Christ. Uh, Peter, you remember, he, he fled Right? In, in the garden. But, but, but Peter, as he thinks back over his life, he realizes that I just can't do this. You know, I mean, I see Jesus walking on the water and I say, Jesus, can I walk? And he calls me out and I start walking on the water and I look at the waves and I sink and Jesus has to save me and he rebukes me for my lack of faith. And, and then Peter, remember this? He, Jesus is saying how he's going to die and so Peter pulls him aside and says, Lord, 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 I understand you had a bad day. You know, it's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And some days are like that even in Australia. And so I'm just telling you, the sun's going to come out tomorrow. So no more of this talk about how you're going to die. And what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes him. Jesus is always rebuking Peter. Rebukes him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Can you, can you think of a worse thing for Jesus to call one of his disciples. There's not a worse word. I mean, Peter knows what Jesus thinks about Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. And then they're in the garden of Gethsemane, and the guards come. And so Peter pulls his little sword and tries to take on all the temple guards, and Jesus rebukes him. Peter, put the sword away for crying out loud. You don't, I could call my father in heaven, myriads of angels. You don't understand. And so Peter puts the sword away and says, good, you're on your own, and, and takes off. He leaves. And then, remember this, this, he's sitting around a coal fire, and someone asks him, are you one of Jesus' followers? And he says, uh, says he denies it with an oath. It, with, with, it says with swearing. And that doesn't mean, you know, blankety, blankety, I don't know what the blank you're talking about. The swearing means he's, he's, he's invoking something sacred. This case, may God in heaven strike me down dead if I even know the man. What, what 
Peter is doing is Peter is, is officially, legally cutting off any history he ever had with Jesus. He's divorcing Jesus. I mean, it's done. It's all finished. Now, he probably thinks Jesus is going to die, and so it's, it doesn't matter, but he, he, he denies him completely. Peter is uh, thinking, you know, I, I'm, Jesus is risen. That's, that's wonderful, but I, I cut off my relationship with him. I can't do this. Other disciples maybe can do it, but I'm constantly failing. This is for someone else to do. I can't do it. Uh, you, ever, you ever get... Can you relate to Peter a little bit? Ever get into this mindset where you start, you catch yourself and you look at what just came out of your mouth. It's like 180 degrees from what should be coming out of the mouth of a believer. And you go, I thought I was farther along than this. Or or you you stop and and your temper blows and you go, when am I ever going to get this thing in control? Man, shouldn't, shouldn't I be growing here? Or, or you, in a moment of idleness, your mind starts going in some goofy place to satisfy some ungodly desire, and you catch yourself, and you go, what in the world am I thinking? Your, your thoughts and your words and your mind, that reflects carnality a whole lot more than it reflects sanctification. And, and, and maybe you're in a situation where you know you should stand up for Jesus. Someone's taking shots at Christianity, at him. But you go yellow, right? You just don't say a word. Or maybe you're in a place where you, you, you should just share him with somebody. Witness, but nah, fear kind of rules you. What other people think about me rules me. and So you don't say anything. Maybe you've even denied him. Or maybe even like a, a major moral splotch kind of hits your spiritual resume. Maybe it's public, maybe it's not. But you know, it's still, after it's all said and done... Can't wait to get to heaven one day, but bottom line is, down here, you are a second-class citizen spiritually. It's just where you're at. It's where Peter was at in John 21. I can't do this. Let other people do it. I wish I could. I can't. So 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, I'm using NIV 1984's version because I think it best reflects the Greek text. Now, here, here's the deal. Uh, in Greek, we know the New Testament was originally written in Greek. There are at least three words in the Greek for, for love. The first word is agape. We're familiar with agape, right? Agape is, is stainless, pure, 100% full, complete love. It does, it's impossible to get better than this, right? Then there's the word phileo. Phileo is, is, is like a, a like. It's, 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 it's nice, um, but it's definitely a fallen word. Um, Philadelphia comes from two words, phileo and adolphos, uh, which is brothers. So love for brothers, city of brotherly love, right? Phileo. Uh, then there's the third word, eros, that deals with sexuality that's not in this text, just so you know. Um, they try to give this out in English by putting that word truly there. You see, Jesus said, do you truly love me more than these? And so maybe he's saying these, the comparison, because Peter just a few days earlier said, though all of these fall away, I will never fall away. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, do you agape me more than these? And Peter's answer Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But you notice in English, it doesn't say truly love you. It's because Peter does not use the word agape. He uses phileo, that kind of like you is the word. 
So Jesus says, Peter, your love for me, is it pure? Is it stainless? Is it full and complete? And Peter says, man, I can't say that. I wish I could say I can't say that. But you know all things. You know, my, you know the condition my love is. And, and so, phileo, Lord. Now, you'd think that Jesus at this point would put on the brakes and say, Peter, for crying out loud, if you can't say agape at this point, well, forget it. There's the door. I'm done with you. You're over. Okay, just go back fishing again. We're, we're finished here. Or maybe I'll give you some real menial task in the kingdom, right? Instead, Jesus says, Peter, I'm getting ready to leave. I need you to feed my lambs. Again, by the way, I think if Peter were to came back with an agape, uh, right there, do you love you agape me, Peter, more than these? I think if Peter would have said yes, I think that the text is done. The chapter's finished. We're over. We don't hear anything else about Peter. We, it's, it's, it's all done. Peter had to get to a place where he realized it's not about my ability to not blow it. It's about the resurrected Jesus. He's getting there. In verse 16, Jesus again said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? We're not going to do a comparison thing this time, not the other guys, but he still pulls the word agape. Do you truly love me? Agape me, Peter. Pure love, full love, complete love, love just like God has. Do you have that for me? He says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. In other words, no. I, I wish I could say that. You know, you know, you know my heart. You know my failures. Jesus answered him, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice there's no truly there. Because Jesus comes down to Peter's level. Phileo. Do you even phileo me, Peter, right? That's why it says Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter wasn't hurt because Jesus asked him three times, like the third time just made him hurt. But because the third time he said, phileo, Jesus maybe is even calling into question the phileo. Do you you even kind of like me, Peter? And so Peter comes back. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know the water and I sank down and you rebuked me and you know the telling you you're not going to die and you called me Satan and you know they're trying to take on the army. What a stupid thing. And you know the denying you with an oath. You were right there. You heard it. You know all things. But you know my heart. You know what goes on in here. And you know I love you. Um, that's, I come to this text often in life. I can relate to, to Peter as far as falling over again on your face. And Jesus says, ah, it's not about your ability to not. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So if you uh, relate to Peter at all, you can get so wrapped up in your failures that we miss what he has for us. We want to throw in the towel. We want to walk away in the resurrected Jesus, just as he came to Peter so back, way back when, would come to each of us today and say, no, 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 no. There's no second-class citizens in my kingdom. Not based on their, 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 their past baggage. That's all done. Not based on their doubts. I can work with that. Not based on their failures. No second-class citizens. I've got a job for you to do. Don't be derailed. Johnny Depp, in a 2013 interview with Rolling Stone, 
He said, I went around for years thinking, well, what's it all for? All this stuff I got to do, interviews and movies and success, or not success, or this or that. But when my daughter was born, it was as if a veil was lifted and things became clear and I went, oh, I get it now. That's what life is for. I didn't have a real handle on what life is supposed to mean or be or anything like that. And I still don't. And I'm not sure if life is supposed to mean anything at all. But as long as you have the opportunity to breathe, breathe. And as long as you have the opportunity to make your kids smile and laugh, move it forward. I think we're here and that's kind of it. Then it's dirt and worms. When he dies, Depp says this. He says... uh, that regarding his body, he said, they should just toss my body over a mountain so that people can watch my body bounce. Might as well entertain people, Deb said. You know, it's, it's, it's really sad, isn't it, to see people like Fantine who have absolutely nothing and they've got no hope, or people like uh, Johnny who've got everything and they've got no hope. Because Jesus rose, that's his message to Mary's and to Thomas's and to Peter's. It's not all dirt and worms. That there is something beyond this place. And in the, the meantime, there's a message for you to give some incredible significance. And you need to look to me, not to your past, not to your failures, not to your doubts. You need to look to me. And if you do, if you seek me, you'll find me if you search for me with all your heart. Um, so I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you find yourself in that to Mary category or Peter or Thomas I'm guessing anything in between. Uh, Jesus would come to you as well, pointing out the fact that there's hope because of the resurrection. It's not the news of the resurrection, but it's an encounter with Jesus. So, so have you encountered the resurrected Jesus? Would you pray with me?